Uh, I'm on here. Thank you so much, Chris. And it's been such a delight to be with you these days. And um, of course, some of you I know it's uh, the first time, but uh, it's been a thrill. You know, it's always a thrill to travel and see what the Lord's doing in other churches. That's a, that's a benefit I get. And uh, seriously, it's uh, so encouraging to me. And I've been encouraged uh, by uh, your pastoral staff and others I've met here. Uh, yeah, I've had some great questions here after my, after my sessions. So I, I said this if you were here Friday night, and I think I said it this morning in Sunday school, but this is a, this is a very unusual sermon. I don't usually do it this way. I'm not expositing uh, a passage of Scripture. I'm really finishing my four lessons on, on perseverance. So, um, you know, it's, it's more thematic. I'm not, I'm not just explaining a certain passage. I, I hope it's helpful to you as, as we go. So, it, like Chris said, it won't be three hours. It'll only be two. So, we'll all be fine. So, let's pray as, again. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do uh, pray that you'd come now by your Spirit and teach us, instruct us, encourage us, challenge us, comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I mean, I know there's some new people here, so let's just, I just want to summarize where we've been really quickly. So the first night, I looked at the warning passages in Scripture. What do I mean by the warning passages? I mean the passages that say something like, if Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. That's a warning, right? If, if you fulfill that condition of denying him, he'll deny you on the last day, right? Or, or a passage where Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you must, you must endure to the end to be saved. You must persevere to be saved. That's what, that's what we're talking about here, perseverance. You, you must continue in the faith until the end to be saved. And... Uh, you know, we looked, at, we looked at warning passages all through the Bible, but I ended with these five warning passages in Hebrews, those five passages that all belong together and that mutually interpret one another. So that, that was the first night, really quick. And then, and then we talked about uh, the second night, what perseverance isn't. Perseverance isn't perfection. We all fall short in many ways. So, you know, I gave a number of uh, indications that perseverance isn't perfection. We, you know, we, we, we pray for forgiveness. It's clear in the Bible that we'll be perfected on the day of the resurrection, that, that, uh, that there are exhortations given to us uh, as believers, admonitions, commands, that, that we, have in, we saw indications even the best Christians can do better. And, the, and then there, there are passages that say perfection will come on the last day when we're presented before God. And then I gave some examples of people who weren't perfect, including Peter and Zechariah. And then there in Sunday school, we talked about how per, uh, perseverance isn't works righteousness. Yes, works are, works are one necessary indication that we belong to God. But they're the fruit of faith. Our works are a fruit of faith. They're always imperfect. The, the, our righteousness is finally based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. So our righteousness isn't finally in ourselves, but in Christ crucified and, and risen. So uh, 
And then, we, and then we saw people who persevered at the end, people that are, some of them are kind of shocking, like Samson, right? And, and we saw that, we saw a very interesting passage. Jesus says, if I deny you, uh, if, if you deny me, I'll deny you. But Peter, Peter denies Jesus and yet he's forgiven. So we see, yeah, there's some complexity in that statement, right? You, you, there can be a denial of Jesus like Peter did, but he repented and he was forgiven. So that, that's when I said what Jesus must have meant if we fully and finally deny him, then he'll deny us. And so, so today I just kind of want to uh, talk about, okay, how do we understand those warnings, especially what we talked about the first night? Uh, and, and, and here I want to start this way by saying the warnings, who are the warnings given to? Let's think about, about the letter to the Hebrews. Who are the warnings directed to? The warnings are directed to believers. And they're about salvation. They're about eternal punishment, right? If you deny Jesus, if, if, you, don't, if you don't continue until the end, if you crucify the Son of God, right? If you trample him under your feet, right? If you uh, outrage the spirit of grace, right? If you consider the blood of the covenant defiled, you, the God's a consuming fire to you, right? There's no forgiveness for you. So those warnings... Those warnings are about life and death, eternal, eternal life. But, so life and death is at stake, but, but here's, here's the, dis, this, the distinctive element. But true believers, true believers will always heed those warnings. So, so the warnings, the warnings become a means by which we persevere. So that's, that's what I'm arguing today. We need the warnings as a means. So perseverance is not equal to perfection. Perseverance is not works righteousness. It flows from faith. It clings to the righteousness of Christ. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Believers can't lose their salvation either. So uh, I, let's, let's begin by thinking of this. How, how do you know how do you know you're a Christian? Probably some in here aren't believers today, right? And uh, Dave, in one of the songs, invited you, right, to believe based on Christ's death for sinners. How do you know if you're a believer? That in the Bible, why it's trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, but also it's the reception of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So, the warnings are addressed to believers. Believers are those who have the Holy Spirit. So what does this text say? You continue in your Christian life the way you began, by trusting in the power of the Spirit to keep you, right? He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Believers are promised 
that they'll persevere. So that brings me back to the warnings. How do the warnings work? Here, warnings are perspective. Warnings are perspective. They're not declarations. They're not retrospective. You say, what in the world are you talking about? So what's a perspective warning? So perspective is you're walking ahead in life, right? You're walking in the life, and you see, you know, you see a sign that says uh, falling rock, right? That's perspective. Or, or uh, th- there's a sign, there's a curve up to ahead. That, that's perspective. Retrospective is when, when you look back, right? You look back at something, that's a retrospective vision. Warnings, though, are prospective, right? They, they have to do with the future. Retrospective is when you look back. That has to do with the past. Well, that, that makes per- perfect sense. If I said, this is poison, it, which it is not. I've been drinking it, and I'm okay so far. If, if you drink this poison, you will die. That, that's a warning, isn't it? That's, a, that's perspective. Don't, don't do that in the future. If, uh, if, if something is uh, a poison, so, the, so here's the thing, and I think this is very important when it comes to Hebrews. A lot of people read the warnings in Hebrews as if they're rebuking the readers for falling away. But that's not how the warnings work. He's not rebuking the readers. He's not telling them they have fallen away. He's telling them, don't fall away. There's an important difference there. He's urging the readers, I urge you today, if you're a believer, this warning is for you and for me, don't fall away. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep drinking. Is, is Is that a burden to say don't fall away? Keep drinking from the fountain of living water. That's not a burden, right? Keep, keep drinking from the fountain that will give you the greatest pleasure and joy in life. That's what the warning is about. The, 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 the warnings are like letters or in-person meetings with a trusted marriage counselor saying, stay together, work this out, work, work at your marriage. So our, our daughter, Anna, she ran cross-country, she ran cross-country and track in uh, high school and, and college, and uh, I didn't get to go to so many of her college meets. She was a bit farther away, but I went to almost all her high school meets, and, uh, you know, her coach, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if they do this everywhere. I don't know that much about cross-country because I just basically watched her run, but her coach would meet her at key junctures of the race. He would run to the places, and he'd give her instructions. You start out too fast. Slow down a little bit. Or, or you need to pick it up, right? Th- that's how warnings work, right? We're running a race. We're running a race, and we're given exhortations and warnings. Here, here's what it means to run the race. Okay. Here's the big objection to my view. You're saying the warnings are given to believers. All true believers will definitely be saved What's the point? What's the point of these warnings, right? What do you mean everybody's going to make it? If everybody's going to make it, you don't need the warning. That's the objection. So are the, are the warnings, I'll put it more technically, 
are the warnings drained of significance if the consequence, damnation, can't be realized? If no believer is going to drink the poison, why do you have to warn them? Here's my, here's my response. Basically, this is what I'm saying the whole time. Such a response reads the warnings abstractly. So somebody, somebody who responds that way, they're actually saying the warnings make no difference. They're saying the warnings don't matter. But that's missing exactly what I think the Scriptures teach. No, the warnings are a means. God uses the warnings to keep us. They're, they're, they're our cattle prods, right? They, they keep us in line. We had, we've had lots of missionaries stay with us over the years. One year, uh, when we still had kids at home, we had these missionaries with us. They had a van pack, uh, parked in the back of our driveway, and I made a joke. I said, you know, one of these days I'm going to back out the car and hit their car. And, uh, but then one day, I forget what it was, we had to go fast. We had our last two kids with us, John and Anna. We hop in the car. I put it in reverse. Boom, I'm ready to go, you know, and I'm backing up really fast. And da- John yells out, Dad, stop! I completely forgot that car was there. Boom, I hit the brakes. I didn't hit the car, you know. Praise the Lord. John's warning saved me, right? The, the warning was the means by which I didn't, I didn't uh, hit the car. Yet we went a few years ago to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm sure some of you have, standing above the south rim there. And you know what I thought of doing? Jumping. I wasn't depressed at that moment, but I thought, wouldn't it be fun to jump, you know? But guess what? I didn't do it, you know? (laughs) Why didn't I do it? Because jumping sounds fun for a while, right? But the end result is not fun, right? So I thought, that'd be fun to jump. It entered my mind. It'd be fun to jump. But then I said, but consider the consequence. I imagined the consequence, and I didn't jump, right? There's a little warning signal that, you know, we we use this every day in our life. There was no no way I was going to jump. But I thought about it, right? But not really. You know what I mean? Because there's no way I'm going to jump because I thought of the consequence. That's how the warnings work. You deny Jesus, he'll deny you. I'm not going to do that, right? I love Jesus, and he keeps me. So... Someone says, well, those are really nice examples. Can you give us an example from the Bible? Yes, I can. So Acts chapter 27. This is an illustration of the principle. Acts chapter 27. Starting in verse 21. This is the shipwreck scene. So, so they're, they're uh, you know, Paul's a prisoner. He's on the ship. He's headed towards Rome. There's a big storm. Um, and Paul, so we'll pick it up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. That is my life verse. Men, you should have listened to me. Right? right? So just kidding. So anyway, that's an interesting verse though, right? Here, I, I love this. This is such a fascinating story. Here Paul's the prisoner on the ship, right? But he's basically almost running the ship. You know, it's, Paul was a leader, Right? 
Men, you should have listened to me and not have set, because Paul warned them not to do this, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, be encouraged, for there will be no loss of life among you. Ah, there's the promise. That's the, now, this is physical, right? But that's the same promise we have for salvation. There'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, how does Paul know that? Because, verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. By the way, I just want to say that, this. Isn't that a great way to talk about being a Christian? I belong to God and I worship him. He just throws that in, right? So, I belong to this God, I worship him. This angel appeared to me and, and he said in verse 24, how does Paul know there'll be no loss of life? Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar in Rome and, and look, God has granted you all those who sail with you. They're all going to live. So that's the promise, right? So take heart, men, Paul says, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. And then, by the way, that's how the story ends, right? All 276, Luke numbers them, all 276 live. But we must run aground on some island. Now, what would you do if you had a promise like that and you were in the ship? I know what I would have done. I would have gone down into the bottom of the ship, turned on Netflix, ordered some popcorn, and just waited for it to happen. What? Just like, okay, this is going to be fine. Now I'm just going to relax. But that's not what happened. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So, so the ship's getting near the land, right? They took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, right, getting shallower and shallower. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for day to come. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. So there's a little ship, right? There's a dinghy. The the sailors decide, we're out of here. We're going to get on the little ship. Forget these guys on this boat. This is dangerous. So they'd lowered the ship's boat, the little dinghy, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. But Paul's on the watch, right? And Paul, Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. There's the warning, right? Unless you stay in the ship, you will, unless these sailors stay in the ship, you will die. Well, he's already got a promise. What's this warning for, Right? But here we see it in this very passage. No, the warning and the promise, they're not enemies, but they're friends. The warning becomes the means by which the promise is realized. And it is realized. I didn't, I'm not reading the rest of the passage. They were, the sailors cut away the ship. They stayed in the ship. Everybody made it. Here's, a, here's, a, here's another example. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. But the Lord is faithful... He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's a promise. The Lord's faithful. He'll establish you. He'll guard you from Satan. He'll deliver you from him. But what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why do we have to pray that prayer? He promised he's going to guard us from the evil one, right? Hey, 
The Lord will establish you. He will guard you from the evil one. I don't have to pray the Lord's Prayer. No, yes, you do. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer is one of the means God uses to fulfill the promise, right? We pray the promises. Do you remember, do you remember Daniel chapter 9? What is Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 9? He's reading what's now, they didn't have chapters in those days, but he's reading Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29. And Jeremiah chapter 25 and Jeremiah chapter 29 say that Israel will come home from Babylon after 70 years. And what's Daniel praying? Daniel's praying, Lord, fulfill that promise. Isn't that interesting? Daniel doesn't say, well, it's going to happen. I don't need to do anything. He, his prayer is one of the means God uses to fulfill the promise, right? Do you pray the promises of God? Do you take a promise when you read the Bible? God, God promises will guard you. And then do you pray from the evil one? Then do you pray, Lord, keep me from the evil one? Jesus taught us to do that, didn't he? God will guard you from the evil one. And you're to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's not an either or. It's a both end. Here's another example. Mark Mark 13, verse 20. This is about the end times. Well, actually, I think this is both about A.D. 70 and the end times, but I'm not going to get into that. We won't worry about that. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, that's a definition of the elect. Who are the elect? The elect are those whom God has chosen. He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, you know, these are in these days of great persecution, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. If you believe in a false Christ, you're not a Christian, right? If you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, but you believe in a false Christ, you're not a believer. So Jesus gives them a warning, right? Don't believe in a false Christ. For, for, False Christs and false prophets will arise. They're coming. And they have come throughout history, actually. And they're going to perform signs and wonders. They're, they're going to do miracles, these false Christs and false prophets. They can do miracles and signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. How great will be these signs and wonders? So great that even the elect could be led astray, if it's possible. But it's not possible, is it? The elect can't be led astray. Notice what he says, to lead astray if possible. That's how great the signs and wonders would be. They could lead astray if possible, the elect, but the, the elect can't be led astray because they're elect. But then what does he say? What does he say? Well, you can't be led astray. You're like, but be on guard. Do you see there it is again? He doesn't say, well, you can't be led astray. Don't worry about it. He says, pay attention. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. I skipped to verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. Be vigilant. For you don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, therefore, stay awake. Be vigilant. Right? For you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And this is how the past chapter ends. And what I say, I say to you all, to us, to you, to me, stay awake, 
Stay awake. Be vigilant, he says. You won't be led astray. Be alert. Be on guard. Watch out. Don't fall for false Christs and false prophets. The, the, the promise and the warning, they fit together. God uses, God uses the warning to keep us. It's our, it's our cattle prods, right? They're, they're our sheepdogs, you know, keeping us in line. So, are the warnings superfluous? You know, are they besides the point? Now, look, look. There are different views out there. Yeah, I understand. A little bit technical here. I understand if someone's an Arminian. Arminians believe you can lose your salvation, right? I don't hold that view. I don't think that's a biblical view. I don't think that's a heretical view. I, don't, I think if you hold that view, you're not an unbeliever, right? Some very wonderful believers believe that you can lose your salvation, but I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. But so no, no Arminian's going to believe what I'm saying, right? They're not going to believe that because they think you can lose your salvation. But, but I think this fits with what Scripture says about how we're saved. Because Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that God elects his own from the foundation of the world. God has chosen us. God has chosen the elect, right? Remember the previous passage. If it was possible, the elect would fall away, but the elect can't. Why not? God chose them. God's going to keep those he's chosen. We read in Romans 9 that God calls not based on our works. Why did God, God call, choose Jacob instead of Esau, Romans chapter 9? Not based on our works. Not based on looking ahead and seeing what a wonderful brother Jacob was. Right? Oh, wasn't he a wonderful brother? I'm kidding. Right? He wasn't such a wonderful brother. No, God didn't choose him for that reason. Um, we're told in Romans, he chose Jacob before he was born, instead of Esau, and before they'd done anything good or bad. So, so the faith Jacob had and the faith you have if you're a Christian, it's a gift, isn't it? God gave you the gift of faith. By grace, you are saved through faith. For this is not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God that no one should boast. God has elected, God has chosen those who are his before the foundation of the world. And God has chosen before you were born, if you're a Christian, who would believe? And he's given you the gift of faith. Why, Why is this in the Bible? Well, I teach in a seminary, so we'll have something to talk about in our seminary classes, right? Now, that's not why it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible so no one will boast, Right? It's so that we won't say, I believed, I did it. No, 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 no. God, you believe because God gave you faith. So what do we do when we preach the gospel? This is what I always do, don't you? I say, now, now those of you who are chosen, will you please come forward? Those of you who are elect, yeah, that's you, Susie. That's you, John. Come on, come on up. I can tell you're elect. No, that's not how we preach the gospel, Right? How did, how did they preach the gospel in the book of Acts? What did they say? They say over and over again, repent. I call upon you to repent, and I call upon you to believe. Well, why do you do that if God's already chosen? Who will repent and believe? 
Because the preaching of the gospel is the means God uses to bring people to faith, right? And the means matter. God uses the proclamation of the gospel and he used it in your life if you're a believer to bring you to faith. Belief? You know, so this initial, what I'm saying here, that initial call to faith is just how the warnings work. In order to be saved, you must believe. Belief is a condition, right? There's a warning there. If you don't believe, you won't be saved. Belief is a condition. But God will fulfill it in the life of his own. And that's how the warnings work. You, you must continue to believe and repent until the end of your days. God has promised the elect will persevere. God has promised those whom he has chosen, those in whom he's began a good work, he'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't eliminate the need to keep on believing and to keep on enduring. So the warnings... The warnings are a call to keep on believing, to keep on trusting. Okay, okay, they always work in the lives of the chosen, but then we have to ask the question, what about those, what about those who fall away? There are people who fall away, right, who make a profession of faith. Remember, the warnings are prospective, right? But what about those who fall away? That's retrospective, right? We're looking back. We're looking back. What about those who fall away? What do we say about them? You know, the warnings, right? The warnings are instructions shouted to runners during the race. But you can have armchair reflections after the race, right? You know, we all, at least maybe not we all, some of us watched the Super Bowl recently. You know, that's coaches are giving instructions. Surely, after the game, even, you know, the, those who lost, they look back and say, what happened, right? What happened in that game? Those are armchair reflections. Well, the, those who have fallen away, we're looking back. What's the retrospective view? What do we say about those who have fallen away? And, and, and here, here's what we're told. First John 2.19, this is a crucial verse. Many of you know it. They went out from us. So they were part of the church, right? They were part. They went out from us. What does he say? But they were not of us. They went out from us. He's not just saying, you know, they left to join another good evangelical church, right? He's talking about people who've left the faith. They, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Th that is, they weren't really saved at all. Why? Because for if they would, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they were truly saved, what does he say? They would have persevered. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. They left. Then it might be, become plain that they all are not of us. They went out to show they were never Christians at all. True Christians will persevere and the warnings and the means by which they're kept. But those who fall away, yeah. They maybe looked like they were Christians, but they weren't. Here's, the, here's another one, example. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some people will say, Lord, Lord, and they won't enter the kingdom. 
It's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who cast out demons, who prophesied in Jesus' name, who did miracles. And Jesus will say, you lost your salvation. No, that's not what he said. I never knew you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, oh, you were part of me once and now you're not. I never knew you. Never, ever. You never belonged to me, ever. It's not always apparent, right, when we're walking into life. I don't try to guess in my church. Are there any people in our church that's not truly a believer? No, we don't, I don't, we don't play that game, right? May, oh, who isn't? It's a retrospective view, isn't it? When Jesus predicted that Judas would betray him, I find this always fascinating. Every head in the room didn't swivel towards Judas, right? When Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me, everybody didn't look around and go, it's him. We know it. Judas did miracles too. He cast out demons too. He spoke in Jesus' name too. They didn't know who it was. They only knew afterwards who it was, right? Judas never knew him. Jesus never knew Judas. 2 Timothy 2.18, Paul speaks of those who have swerved from the truth, saying, saying that the resurrection has already happen, happening. They're upsetting the faith of some. They're, that's the same word used for overturning the tables uh, in, the, in the temple that Jesus did, right? They're upsetting. They're turning over the faith of some. They're ruining the faith of some. But, but the next thing Paul says is interesting. But God's firm foundation stands, bringing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Yeah, some people, they're abandoning the faith. They're not his. They were never his. The Lord knows those who are his. So somebody can make a profession, if you were here the first nine, as far as I know, like Amy but retrospectively, unless she repents, I don't know, you know, but as far as I can see, because I'm not God, right? Hopefully I'm wrong, but she's not his, right? Because she hasn't repented. Lord, the Lord knows those who are his. So the warnings, the warnings, they're directed to believers. The warnings... The warnings, this is really important when we come to Hebrews. They're not not given to quench assurance. The the warnings aren't given to tamp down insurance. The warnings warnings aren't even a a place for introspection. So many, many people read the warnings in Hebrews and they use those. This is how they're often preached. They use the warnings in Hebrews to say, am I really a Christian? But that's not the point of the warnings. I mean, there are passages that do that. But that's not the point of the warnings. The point of the warnings is keep running the race. They're not a call to introspection. They're a call to action. When my kids were young, I used to say, kind of politically correct nowadays, please don't tweet me, I guess. But I have no problem with what I'm about to say. I used to say, if you run in the street 
I'm going to spank you super hard. I'm going to spank you really hard if you run the street. Why did I give that warning? Because I wanted to spank my kids? Absolutely not. I didn't want them to get run over. <laughs> you know? So that's why I gave them that warning. But when I said that, I wasn't asking my kids to ask this question. Don't run in the street. I didn't want them to ask this question. Am I alive? Right? That's what some people do with the warnings in Hebrews. You see what I'm saying? I wasn't asking, am I, am I alive? I'm saying, don't run in the street. That's how the warnings work. They're not a call to, oh, oh, you read Hebrews. Maybe I'm not a Christian. That's not what the writer's doing. That's a fine question sometimes, but that's not what the warning's doing. The warning's saying, trust in Jesus. Well, the author, you know, they knew some didn't belong to God, but they don't write, I'm writing to the authentic Christians. No, the warnings are to stimulate believers, keep trusting in the Lord. Those who don't heed the warnings, they were never saved. They never belonged to God. Those who fall away and never repent, they were never Christians. Ultimately, we don't know who those people are, do we? Right? At the end, we'll see. There, there, you know, sometimes a Christian falls away for a little bit and comes back, right? And sometimes a person falls away and never comes back. It's not our job to know that. Our job is to say, keep following Jesus. If you've fallen, repent and believe. You know, in both Galatians and Hebrews, Paul and Galatians, and whoever wrote Hebrews, I don't think it's Paul, they're confident that the warnings will work. Listen to this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 10. After he's given a warning, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who's troubling you, the false teacher, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So what does he say? I have confidence the warnings are going to work. I have confidence you're going to follow what I'm saying. I have confidence that these warnings are going to have a good effect in your life. Same in Hebrews. After the strongest warning, perhaps, well, maybe it's not the strongest. Chapter 10 is pretty strong. But one of the strongest warnings in the letter in Hebrews 6, the author says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Even though I'm warning you so strongly, he says, I'm sure you're going to respond to what I'm saying. So how does this fit with the warnings in Hebrews? And in Hebrews 6, he, ad- he addresses the congregation as a whole, as Christians. He, do- he doesn't concern himself in the warning whether they're false believers in the congregation. He addresses the Christians. So that's, that's the main point I'm making. It's your mail. When you read the warning, it's for you and me. When it says, if you deny Jesus, he'll deny you, you should respond to that by saying, I don't want to deny Jesus, and I don't want him to deny me. Lord, help me. So the warnings are part of the gospel. They're a way of saying, keep trusting in Jesus until the end. Now, like I said, this is an unusual talk. I never never do this in sermons, but I'm going to close. I'm going to close by reading 
two long quotes. And uh, one is from Sp Charles Spurgeon, who held my view, by the way. I guess I should say I hold his view, right? <laughs> he came first, right? And the second is by Herman Bobbing. The first, the first quote I'm going to read is classic Spurgeon, beautifully clear and powerful. The second one is a little more challenging theologically. Herman Bobbing was a theologian, and he writes in theological-type language, but it's so good. You've got to hear it. And if you don't get anything out of Bobbing, they're saying the same thing, right? So, um, so Spurgeon's... Spurgeon's quote, it comes in two parts. First, he asks himself, who are those addressed in the warning in Hebrews 6? And he's going to say they're Christians. And then he's going to say, what are the warnings for? And he's going to say they're for means. So, uh, basically what I've been saying. But Spurgeon puts it so beautifully that I wanted to read it to you. And I just love how Spurgeon says things. First then, here we go. We answer the question. Who are the people here spoken of in Hebrews 6, you know, with that warning? If you read Dr. Gill, Dr. Owen, and almost all the eminent Calvinistic writers, they all of them assert that these persons are not Christians. That's the first night, the almost Christian view. They say that enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. So that's you know, that's the view that Spurgeon is disagreeing with. Yeah, well, they're almost Christians. They're enlightened. They're sharers of the Spirit, but they're not quite Christians. But Spurgeon says, no, this is wrong. They're Christians. Here's what he says. Now, it strikes me that they would not have said this if they had, had not had some doctrine to uphold. For a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than there are here. How can a man be said to be enlightened and to taste of the heavenly gift and to be made a partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God? So Spurgeon says, look, they're clearly believers. With all deference, I love the humility of this next thing, with all deference to these learned doctors, and I admire and love them all, I humbly conceive that they allowed their judgments to be a little warped when they said that. And I think I shall be able to show that none but true believers are here described. And then Spurgeon in the sermon goes on to give lots of reasons why. But, but I'm skipping that. They're true believers. That's what I'm saying. That's what Spurgeon said. But now Spurgeon asks, what's the warning for? Here he goes. But, says one, you say you, that the elect cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in like a bugbear to frighten children or like a ghost that can have no existence? So, so why is there a warning if you can't fall away, right? And this is what Spurgeon says. My learned friend, who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. 
And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice, the Grand Canyon. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell them that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. It's a means. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it. But he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences. And he is sure we will not do it. So God says, so God says, and he's saying this to you today, my child, if you fall over this precipice, if you deny Jesus, you will be dashed to pieces. You'll be destroyed. What does the child do? He says, this is beautiful. I love this so much. Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. So that's the first one. Now, if this next quote helps you, wonderful. If you don't understand it, it's not that long. Okay, here we go. This is bobbing. But for some, even if three of you like this, I'm happy. Because this is kind of technical, but here we go. Now the question, this is so good. Uh, Now the question with respect to this doctrine of perseverance is not whether... Those who have obtained a true saving faith could not, if left to themselves, lose it again by their own fault and sins. In other words, what is he saying there? On our own, yeah, we would fall away even if we're Christians. Left to ourselves, we couldn't do it. Nor is it whether sometimes all the activity, boldness, and comfort of faith actually ceases, and faith itself goes into hiding under the cares of life and the delights of the world. So, So neither, you know, here's the second point. The second point is, nor is the fact that sometimes we struggle and go down low. He goes, I'm not saying that. No, the question is whether God upholds and continues and completes the work of grace he has begun, or whether he sometimes permits it to be totally ruined by the power of sin. Perseverance is a gift of God. He watches over it and sees to it that the work of grace is continued and completed. All those who belong to God will be safe. He does not, he does not, however, do this apart from believers, but through them. In regeneration and faith, he grants a grace that as such bears an inadmissible character. It can't be revoked. He grants a life that is by nature eternal. He bestows the benefits of calling. Do you hear Romans 30 here? justification, and glorification that are mutually and unbreakably interconnected. 
all of the above-mentioned admonitions and threats that Scripture addresses to believers, therefore, do not prove a thing against the doctrine of perseverance. All those warnings don't cancel perseverance. They are rather the way in which God himself confirms his promise and gift through believers. They are the means by which perseverance in life is realized. After all, perseverance is also not coercive, but as a gift of God impacts humans in a spiritual manner. In other words, we're not robots. God's working through us. He's using these means to change us, right? God is working, and yet we're working too. It is precisely God's will by admonition and warning morally to lead believers to heavenly blessedness and by the grace of the Holy Spirit to prompt them willingly to persevere in faith and love. It is therefore completely mistaken to reason from the admonitions and warnings of Holy Scripture to the possibility of a total loss of grace. This conclusion is illegitimate, as when in the case of Christ, people infer from his temptation that he was able to sin, right? Christ was really tempted, but he couldn't sin. He couldn't sin. The certainty of the outcome does not render the means superfluous, but is inseparably connected with them in the decree of God. Paul knew with certainty that in the case of shipwreck, no one would lose his life. Yet he declares, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. By the way, I, I, I was working on this with another friend, and we had come across this text, and we didn't know Bob Fink, Bob Inc. Uh, cited the same verse until we read this quote, and we were very encouraged because probably if you're the only person saying something, it's wrong, right? But to have others say it. So I just close by saying, if you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. But if you belong to God, he's promised to keep you. He's promised, hasn't he? He's promised to keep you and hold you up and... You are called upon to heed that warning and take it seriously. May we all do so by God's grace and power. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that is so powerful and that speaks to us in all its clarity. And Lord, I just pray for anyone in here who does not know Jesus, that they would come to Jesus in repentance and faith and with great joy and that you would save them. And Lord, I pray for all the believers in here that they would heed these warnings and that they would uh, pay attention to their election and calling and confirm their election and calling as they trust in you to the last day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.